Regardless of what they thought about slavery, there was a sympathy among our aristocrats for the aristocrats of the South. The South was a very caste-ridden society, right? You had obviously the enslaved blacks, you had the poor whites, and then the rich aristocrats. And those rich aristocrats would come to Toronto and Montreal, shop in the fine stores, and felt quite at home and became easy friends with the rich aristocrats in Canada. This is Culture at a Crossroads with David Mann. With me in conversation, author, journalist, and most recently, the man behind the book The North Star, Canada and the Civil War Plots Against Lincoln, Julian Schur. Welcome to the show. Glad to be here on such an important topic. Yeah, and a topic that uh, we don't necessarily have a lot of information on, or at least it's not directed towards us. What intrigued you about uh, chasing down something like this? I've always been interested in history. I also knew uh, as early as high school I wanted to be a journalist. And the two came together because I kind of figured I needed to study history and find out where we've been before I could be a journalist and talk about where we were going. And I was at McGill University studying history and also working on the daily paper. And I would walk a few blocks, uh, people who know Montreal, McGill is right in downtown Montreal, and a few uh, blocks south of the campus is the Bay, the flagship store, the Hudson Bay Company store in Montreal. And one year I remember seeing a plaque on the wall of the bay to Jefferson Davis, the leader of the defeated slave states. And I remember thinking two things. Why is there a plaque for a slave leader in my city? And why is it still here, you know, more than 150 years after the war? So, Julian, tell me about Canada's role in the Civil War. Toronto and Montreal in particular, you come back to those a lot in the book. Toronto, Montreal, that's right. Yeah, yeah. Montreal, in many ways, was a Casablanca, like during World War II, a center of spy and scandals. Um, and Toronto, in many ways, similarly. Now, you have to put it in context. Civil War starts in 1861. Abraham Lincoln, the elected Republican president of the U.S., facing a secessionist movement um, of states that want to preserve slavery. And England and therefore Canada, because we were a colony of Canada, declares neutrality. And when you think about that, you could see why Lincoln and his supporters would find that so appalling. Because in declaring neutrality, you know, Britain and Canada were kind of saying, well, between Lincoln and the slave South, we're not going to pick a side. We're going to be neutral. But this was not only two morally equivalent sides, but also This was a civil war. This was a breakaway republic violating the laws and trying to break up a legitimate country. So what it meant is that the slave South um, that were facing, you know, all the usual vicissitudes of war could cross the border. And in Montreal and Toronto, not in a hidden way, in an open way, they could collect money for their cause. They could have soldiers. They could spread their propaganda because we were neutral. So it gave them a haven a place where they could enjoy fine food and restaurants and the good life while Richmond and the rest of the South were under constant bombardment from the North. But eventually it also meant it became a staging ground for what we would now consider terrorist attacks. 
By early 1864, the tide is beginning to turn. The South isn't necessarily losing yet, but it's stopping to win. And they're quite desperate. And the North is bigger, stronger army. So Jefferson Davis, that president who would eventually come to Montreal, the president of the Confederate States, signs a, a secret law that authorizes $1 million back then, it's about $16 million today, to set up a secret service. And most of that money will go to Canada. And my book documents how that money will be used to plot all kinds of nefarious deeds with the connivance and sometimes cooperation of prominent uh, Canadians. There's so much that goes on behind the scenes in this book that you give us some insight into. And you said that Canada is a neutral state or what, what was Canada is a, is a neutral state as far as their perception of this war. But what about the, the public? It, it's an interesting division. Uh, there was no polling, so we don't know, you know, what, what was the public opinion. But we know from the numbers that tens of thousands of ordinary Canadians, um, obviously huge numbers of Canadian blacks from southern Ontario, huge numbers of French Canadians who were already living in northeastern states, and many other Canadians in huge numbers signed up uh, for the Union Army. They did that because it was geographically close. It was economically beneficial. They got a good salary, but many of them died. Many won medals of honor. So ordinary Canadians seem to support the, uh, the North. But now let's flip. Let's look at the elite, the rich, the powerful. Well, for various reasons, most of the newspapers owned by wealthy publishers and financial barons, most of the newspapers were anti-Lincoln, if not openly pro-South. They denounced Lincoln. They called him the blood-stained despot at Washington. And it was so bad that when Lincoln is assassinated, think about that, Lincoln's assassinated April 1865. Today, we think of him as one of the best, most famous presidents. But at the time, if you were reading a newspaper in Toronto, the Toronto leader said, uh, talking about the assassination, well, it should not be forgotten, it wrote, that for all such deeds, there is some cause. He bl they blamed Lincoln for the harsh treatment, get this, of the oppressed people of the South. Wow. And they weren't talking about the slaves. They were talking about, about the whites. If you were in London, London, Ontario, the London Examiner um, uh, talked about John Wilkes Booth, the assassin, and he said his his deed, and this is a direct quote, was literally justified by the facts. The man he killed had murdered the Constitution of the United States. So you have Canadian newspapers not only opposing Lincoln, but almost celebrating his assassination. And the lone voice in the Canadian newspapers uh, was a man named George Brown, the founder of The Globe, which eventually became The Globe and Mail that we know today. He was a staunch abolitionist and he supported Lincoln and denounced the other newspapers. But he was the exception. Wow. So interesting. Julian, could you uh, help us get an even fuller understanding as to why uh, so many of these people were sympathetic to the South? You, you mentioned that uh, one of the quotes murdered the constitution of the U.S., that constitution that was in some ways built on slavery? What do you mean by that? What was the sentiment there? 
There were several reasons. Um, and it didn't necessarily mean there, there might have been some members of the elite who openly supported slavery. They were all, I think, quite racist in their attitude, as unfortunately many people were to non-whites and to blacks in the South. It didn't mean that they were, yes, yes, we're strongly in favor of slavery. It was more complicated than that. First of all, there was a financial reason. Look, the elites in Britain and in Canada um, were neutral because they had very profitable relationships with the South. 80% of the cotton that Britain depended upon came from the South. The British naval shipyards um, were refurbishing the Southern uh, ships. You have to remember Lincoln imposed a blockade. He was trying to strangle the South. So what the Confederates would do is they could go to Halifax and spend lots of money rebuilding their Navy and their ships and getting supplies, staying at hotels. That meant a lot of money for the rich and the powerful in Halifax and Montreal and Toronto. So there was a financial reason. And there was a political reason too, regardless of what they thought about slavery, they, there was a sympathy among our aristocrats for the aristocrats of the South. The South was a very caste-ridden society, right? You had obviously the enslaved blacks, you had the poor whites, and then the rich aristocrats. And those rich aristocrats would come to Toronto and Montreal, shop in the fine stores, and felt quite at home and were became easy friends with the rich aristocrats in Canada. The other reason which is important to understand, is that there were members of Lincoln's administration and many people in the North who were openly annexationist. They wanted Canada to join the U.S. They said, hey, we fought against Britain. You too should break away and join the U.S. So there was a defensive reason as well. But I think it's important, you know, looking back, um, you know, we have to be careful. We can't necessarily impose our views today on many things on the past. You know, it's called presentism, where we take our standards and, and judge people by that. I think you have to judge people by the issues at the time. But the point is, at the time, there were open newspapers like the Globe. There were open societies like the uh, Anti-Slavery um, Society of Canada that were openly pro-Lincoln and at, for the abolishment of slavery. That issue was already there, and many people supported it and died for it. So for the elites, for the church leaders, the newspaper publishers, our politicians, the bankers, to support the South means they were making a conscious choice. And I think they, they need to be held accountable for that. We do want to just dive in with this audience on the church leaders. Could you elaborate more on their rationale for supporting the South? So two of the strongest examples, Nova Scotia was, you know, its own province. Uh, Halifax was a huge commercial port for the conservatives. And the Archbishop of Nova Scotia was a man named Thomas Connolly. Now, he would hang out in Bermuda, where he would meet openly and host dinner parties uh, for Confederates who were hiding out in Bermuda. And he then gets to meet one of the Confederate leaders. Remember that million dollars I talked about? Jefferson Davis sanctions a million dollars. Most of it will go to Canada. And he will name two Southern politicians. One of them was Clement Clay. The other was Jacob Thompson. And Clement Clay will stay in Halifax for a while, meet with the Archbishop. And the Archbishop 
told him that he was willing, and this is a quote, to traverse the United States as an advocate of peace or to do anything to promote the end that is compatible with his duty to his church and queen. And then Archbishop Connolly wrote a letter, a gushing letter of reference that he sent to all church members. And he said that this man, this leader designated by slave leader Jefferson Davis, um, was one of the eminent men from the South. And he had a cause that commands the respect and sympathy of the world. So think about that. This wasn't just being defensive. This was offensive. He calls the southern slave states a cause that commands the respect and sympathy of the world. So that's the English church. Now, the French church in Quebec, which was even more powerful, of course, um, had huge influence. Many of the uh, French newspapers um, that were um, either controlled or sympathetic to the Catholic Church were openly uh, pro-South. Um, the uh, newspapers like the uh, Le Canadien um, and uh, La Minerve would publish gushing articles about the South and against Lincoln. And when John Surratt, John Surratt is one of the closest friends of John Wilkes Booth, a collaborator in an attempted kidnapping plot with Booth of President Lincoln that would eventually change in Booth's hands into an assassination plot. John Surratt, right after the assassination, is the most wanted man in um in America, because John Wilkes Booth had been captured and killed. He's hiding out in Montreal. And who comes to his rescue? The Catholic Church. One of the leaders of the Catholic Church was a Father Lapierre, who was an influential and well-connected Quebec priest. He was canon to Ignace Bourget, the Roman Catholic Bishop of Montreal. So you're not talking some local parish priest, right? These are powerful church leaders. Larcel Lapierre, sends his brother to pick up Surratt, who's in hiding in Montreal, and they ride by carriage to a tavern in the East End, and there they cross the St. Lawrence River in a small canoe, and they head towards Saint-Liboire, a small hamlet about 50 miles southeast of Montreal, and it's run by another parish priest named Father Charles Boucher, and Boucher will hide Surratt for several weeks um, in his house, the most wanted accused accomplice of in the Lincoln assassination. Surratt will make his way back to Montreal. Boucher has become so fond of him, he will make visits. And then when they decide it's no longer safe for Surratt to be hiding in Quebec, what do these Quebec church leaders do? They write a letter to the Vatican endorsing Surratt to become a member of the Papal Zouaves. It was a kind of foreign legion, kind of a private church army. And Surratt hides out in Italy for a year until he will be captured and returned to the United States. So those examples, again, you know, it's not just, oh, a little bit of sympathy, maybe a few church sermons. <laughs> These are priests openly collaborating, setting up a rat line, endorsing the work of the slave South and accomplices of Lincoln's assassin. So I think, again, that's part of the history that we haven't heard much about and, and needs to be told. Mm -hmm. No kidding. Wow. Thanks for sharing that. So elaborate, so complex and uh, eerie to, to think back on. Julian, could we start to unpack the 
the Secret Service and contextualize some of this a bit more as with Jefferson Davis and John Wilkes Booth in Canada? Yeah. So what happens is that the um, there's a Montreal Bank a branch of uh, the Ontario Bank in Montreal run by Henry Starnes. Again, not a nobody. Starnes was a prominent politician, was a mayor of Montreal. He's a manager of the bank. And later testimony in the Lincoln assassination trials will show that something like $600,000 was stored by the Confederates in his bank and basically used as a money laundering operation under question his bank tellers would openly say that they knew they were dealing with Confederates. They never asked where the money was going. They said, we didn't know what was going to come of it. And they also admitted that they would engage in transactions where they would leave names blank or take names off that basically allowed the Confederates to, to launder their money. Well, one of the people who walks into the bank in October 1864 is one of America's most famous actors, John Wilkes Booth. Booth is a determined Confederate, hated Lincoln, and for explicitly racist reasons. You know, his one of his famous quotes is he said, right or wrong, God judge me, not man, John Wilkes Booth said. He said, the country was formed for the white, not for the black man. And he was enraged at Lincoln's policies, especially uh, the emancipation of the slaves. So he comes up with a plot first to kidnap Lincoln, although it's hard to see how a kidnapping wouldn't lead to his death one way or the other. He wants to kidnap him and hold him for ransom and force Washington to liberate tens of thousands of Confederate soldiers. So he comes to Montreal. Why Montreal? Because that's where the Confederates have money. That's where he could meet with Confederate leaders. He stayed at St. Lawrence Hall, which <laughs> the building is still there, not far from the house I'm, I'm living in now in, in old Montreal. It was one of the most famous, most luxurious hotels in British North America, beautiful chandeliers, a ballroom, an orchestra, and a billiard room. And John Wilkes Booth plays cards with leading Confederates. He will meet with one of the Confederate agents who had openly talked about assassinating tyrants. And Booth utters these, these fateful words. He boasts, he says, that it doesn't matter whether Abe wins. Heads or tails, his contract is up. His goose is cooked. And of course, a few months later, Booth will make good on those words and assassinate President Lincoln. Now he knows he's going to have to escape from Washington after the assassination. So in Montreal, he gets the names of two people who are Confederate sympathizers who will help him if he needs to escape through Maryland and Virginia. And in fact, he will meet one of those people uh, to hide out after the assassination. But he also walks into Henry Starnes' bank, the Ontario Bank branch in, in Old Montreal, and tells them he wants to run the blockade in the south, he needs to hide out, and he wants to take out a bank draft, kind of the equivalent of a traveler's check today. And they assure him, yes, don't worry, this can only be used by you, no one else could use it if you ever get caught. And ironically, after the assassination, Twelve days later, Booth is hunted down by a Union Army regiment. And you can't make this up. Who leads the Union Army regiment? A Canadian named Edward P. Doherty, a Montreal man who made his choice, signed up with the Union Army, rises through the ranks, and then is picked to lead the regiment that will hunt down John Wilkes Booth. 
Twelve days after the assassination, late April 1865, Booth is tracked down to a Virginia farm. He is shot and killed. And on his body, in his clothes, they find this bank draft signed by Henry Starnes, former mayor and bank manager in Montreal. So you have a Montrealer who's in the Union Army who tracks down Booth and Booth who's holding money signed and endorsed by a Montreal bank manager. And I think that really shows the two sides of Canada's role in the war. No kidding. Wow. Just uh, such a fascinating war to uncover. And just finally, you know, we see the religious notion, religious leaders on the south side, but we know that Abraham Lincoln was a was also a man of faith, and that really prompted him to want to see the the abolishment of, of slavery. Could you could you speak to that at all? What's interesting about Lincoln is his evolution, because Lincoln was a man of his time. He was obviously he was uh, uh, against, and he openly talked about being morally against slavery. But he was, in many of his views, we would now consider racist. Uh, as a lawyer, he defended one of his clients uh, was a man who was who was trying to go after slaves who had escaped and and people who had harbored those slaves. Uh, Lincoln openly said, very famously, um, as the war was started, he said, "If I could save the Union by not freeing a single slave, I would do." it. So slavery wasn't the the driving issue at the beginning. He was in favor of saving the Union. He openly talked when uh, blacks came to visit him at the White House that he didn't believe there was equality between blacks and whites and that the races had to be kept separate. But I think his religion and his moral center of gravity led him to learn and change. And he began to realize that even though he didn't think slavery was vital at the beginning, he didn't want it to be expanded. He said, keep it in the South. But eventually he realized, no, it has to be abolished, mainly for military and political reasons. He needed to weaken the South, but he saw it as the proper moral thing to do. And, you know, Frederick Douglass was a leading black civil rights leader at the time and also a deeply religious man. And Frederick Douglass said, look, he said, for us as black men and women, Lincoln was conservative, slow and, you know, uh, compromising. But for a white man, a white president of a white America, he was he was strikingly bold and, and fought for our cause. And I think that's the way you have to look at Lincoln. Right. And especially how he grew and changed. And so he made choices. And going back to the theme of the book, you know, Emma Edmonds, this young farm girl, Edward Doherty, the man who will join the Union Army and be named to hunt down John Wilkes Booth and Abraham Lincoln make different choices that will, of course, affect history. And then at the same time, our political leaders, our church leaders, the newspaper publishers, the bankers, they made their choices. And I think, you know, the moral of the book is you have to think seriously. And I think the book is about the difficult and and important choices that people made. Wow. Well, it's uh, definitely worth a read. And uh, if you haven't been intrigued enough already in this conversation, there's so much more in the book. The North Star, Canada and the Civil War, Plots Against Lincoln, written by Julian Schur, who we've been in conversation with today. And you can find out more of his info at julianschur.com. Take care. Stay safe, everyone. 
next time on Culture at a Crossroads. This past fall, Canada scored its first goal in World Cup soccer history. The year before, our women won their first ever goal in soccer at the Summer Olympics. Clearly, soccer is growing across this country, and at the same time, so has the career of sports journalist and executive Christian Jack. He's considered by many as the most trusted soccer voice in Canada, and we'll learn what led Christian to move his family from the UK to here, and how he's trusted God in a career that has been at times filled with uncertainty. I never pretend to say that I played the game. You know, I understand that most people who sit in an analyst chair um, are former players and I understand that they can say way more than I could ever say you know but I think for a growing sport in this country it needed something else than X's and O's and it needed something else than just former players telling you that certain things I think you know what I try and bring David is just um you know, just a narrative to things and, and, and a context and sport. Thanks for listening today. A reminder that you can access any of our episodes when you head to the Culture at a Crossroads podcast. We do invite you back next week as we once again explore the intersection of faith and culture in Canada, helping to better equip you in following Jesus.